0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Built for Devs. I'm Lenny Pruce, General Partner at Amplify Partners. This podcast will offer up actionable insights to overcome some of the most challenging aspects of company building, from nailing your initial product to scaling your open source community to getting your commercial offering into customers' hands. You will hear directly from entrepreneurs and operators from the world's leading cloud, dev tools, and distributed systems companies who have solved these challenges firsthand. We're here to help you go from zero to one. On today's episode, I'm so excited to be joined by Armin Dadgar, co-founder and CTO of HashiCorp. Armin is one of the clearest product thinkers I have ever come across. He and his co-founder, Mitchell Hashimoto, have made a multi-billion dollar business out of making complex technology approachable, if not delightful to use, for millions of developers and DevOps practitioners across the globe. Armin and I talk about best practices for product development when targeting a technical developer audience. He shares how HashiCorp builds new products, the importance of developer empathy and understanding your end users' workflows, and where to begin when you just have an idea for a new tool or product. Enjoy. Armin, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Excited to be here.
0: Yeah, well, we're going to talk about product today. And I know HashiCorp is a really unique company because I wouldn't say you guys are a product company, but actually a products company, right? So most companies fail to find resonance with a single product you guys have had, what, like four or five major hits. And so given that history, I, I thought you'd be uniquely qualified to talk about building products for developers and or technical users. So maybe to start, how do you explain or how do you think about product in the context of a developer or a technical end user as your audience? Because, you know, when I think about it, the, the surface area is far more vast than just the underlying software that the user engages with.
1: I, yeah, I think you're right. And I think in some sense, that. It- The way we like to talk about it, we do an onboarding session with all of our new hires. And one of the things we go through is sort of like, what's the design ethos? How does HashiCorp think about building products? What's our approach to to building things? And one of the earliest things we talk about is the product itself is sort of never our North Star, right? The North Star for us is always, what is the concrete user workflow problem we're trying to solve, right? And so I can pick any of our products and, and kind of give you the example, like if I take Terraform, Terraform, yes, it's a product and I talk about its features and what Terraform does, sure. But really what I'm trying to solve is a workflow problem is how do I as a user provision a set of infrastructure? How do I day two scale it up and down? How do I day three reconfigure it? How do I day four get rid of it? It's sort of a life cycle, right? And so I think we sort of step back and say, okay, let's understand really crisply what is the fundamental workflow that we're trying to solve? And then when you know that, you can kind of start to build the product around it in some sense. And I think, you know, if you don't, have a deep understanding of what the underlying workflows, it's really difficult to build a build the right product, right? Oftentimes you only have the right, maybe a subset of the features you need, or you have a superset and you've overdeveloped the product. It's things that you don't actually sort of need, or you're blurring the lines between multiple workflows. So I think that's one piece of it is the is that orientation. I think the second piece is then realizing that these things don't live in isolation, right? The product isn't complete when it's code mm-hmm. complete. The product is just as much about What's the community of users around it? What's the ecosystem of integrations that it works with, right? Like what are all of the other systems that it has to play with? I think this is particularly tool of developer and operator tooling is you live and die in an extremely enormous complex ecosystem, right? So it's not enough to build a hermetic tool. You kind of have to understand how does this play with Kubernetes? How does this play with serverless? How does this play in cloud versus on-prem, right? And so I think that's sort of how we sort of orient around it is understand the workflow deeply, understand the ecosystem deeply, and then it's really about a narrative, right? What's the narrative you're
0: trying to tell? Just to get even more specific, I think, but thinking about the, the in marketing speak, the whole product, right? Outside of the software that a user actually uses day to day, whether it be docs, whether it be a code examples, whether it be white papers. How do you th- think about the blind between almost the actual product and then the rest of that product experience that makes a user going from you know downloading you to actually getting successful with it?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think what's really useful to think about is, you know, what are the metrics that you measure your own success by, right? And I think for us, it's sort of the time to value or the time to that aha moment. And I think you don't start the timer on when the user has it downloaded and configured. You start the timer when they land on your website. And so I think that sort of changes your orientation, which is like, okay, yeah, part of the product is... What is the getting started guide look like? How do you download it? Is there like a development mode that lets you run it more easily? Or do you have to do a full-blown production deployment of the thing, right? And so I think if you start thinking through that orientation, part of it will change your product decisions, right? So many of our tools, for example, we include a specific development mode, right? Start vault and it has a dash dev flag that's designed to say, you know, great, it's a single command to bring up a a mini mock production environment, right? But I think you can start to use that and say, great, I'm actually going to build this in at a product level but I'm also going to base my documentation and getting started guides around that so I can really have that smooth. How do I go from Yulana Vault to website? You're like, this thing is neat. I'm going to download it to, oh, I get it and do be able to do all of that at 10 minutes. Because uh, I think that's really, you know, the faster you can get someone to that aha moment, the faster they're like, okay, I get the problem you're solving. I get the approach you're taking.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned this, the Hashi ethos around workflows. Let's kind of start from square one. You find a workflow that lends itself to productization or you find a specific pain. Right. And where do you Armin start? Do you start building for you put yourself in the practitioner's shoes and start building the experience that you would want? Do you interview customers? And this kind of gets at the, the product question of like, is it more art or is it science? And how do you ultimately fuse those two in, in making product decisions?
1: Super good question. I think the best products need a little bit of both, right? I think a product that has, you know, in some sense you think of it yourself as sort of a, you know, when you start a project, you're sort of the super PM on it. And I think to do it well, you have to bring a bit of an intuition. You have to bring a bit of an opinion. Because if you don't have that, then the product sort of has no soul. And it very obviously has a sort of design by committee feel to it, right? You can tell, okay, there was 12 different views on how it could be solved. And so the product supports 12 different ways of operating, right? And it, it feels clunky because it is clunky, <laughs> right? And so I think the sort of best products are made out of a synthesis of having that domain experience, being able to empathize with the end user But looking beyond just your own immediate use case, you have to go talk to other people and say, great, maybe I understand in a startup environment or a mid-sized environment what that pain looks like, but I don't understand what a large enterprise looks like. Or maybe I know what a large enterprise is. You know, I'm not sympathetic to, you know, a small company. So I think you need to get that range of inputs to understand, okay, well, how is the problem different? How does it, you know, what's scale dependent about this? But then you need to bring your own intuition, your own kind of ethos to it, right? And so, you know, a classic example I use is many of our tools, the HashiCorp tools, we have this natural orientation as a company towards immutability and sort of infrastructure as code. And so with all of our tools, we try and nudge towards this, right? It's not that if you say, hey, I wanna manage a highly mutable infrastructure and run configuration management and production, we're not gonna tell you we don't support that. We're just gonna make it slightly more difficult than if you wanted to do it in an immutable way, right? We're going to kind of nudge you that this is the right way you should be doing it, right? The product comes with an opinion, right? It's a loosely held opinion, but there's an opinion mm-hmm. nonetheless. So I think it, it is this blend of, you need that intuition, you need that empathy, but you also need to go collect the data and make sure you're not building a tool just for
0: yourself. So it sounds like it's really striking this delicate balance between being principled, yet ultimately not being overly prescriptive.
1: Exactly, and I think you can see kind of, case after case where you have product founders that are overly dogmatic Mm and in their view that this is the one, you know, the one true way we should be doing this. Most often those companies fail because it's like, that's great, but it's just like your opinion, man.
0: Yeah. (laughs) This notion of opinion, I think is really interesting, particularly when it comes to building for devs. Right. And in my mind, I think the biggest tension that companies like HashiCorp or any developer-oriented company face is this trade-off you make between building complete product experience versus building primitives, right? So thinking about something like Heroku versus EC2, the former is clearly much more opinionated. It purposely constrains what you can build with it or on it, but it's got this, you know, transformational developer experience that everyone kind of points to as this North Star. While, you know, I've never heard anyone talking about how delightful EC2 is to work with, but the trade-off is you could do practically anything with it. So I think the thing that's always impressed me about H- Hashi is that you guys seem to have really thread that needle of creating really flexible primitives, but also having kind of a kick-ass developer experience Well, and so ultimately not sacrifice or not sacrificing on the developer experience. So can you describe this tension and how you guys try to overcome it or how you guys have overcome it?
1: It's a very tough problem. I mean, even internally, right? Like I use the example of Terraform, which is... When we started with Terraform, we had this fundamental tension, which is on one hand, we said, hey, we want to build a tool that can manage sort of life cycle of any resource and really make it a lot easier for a developer. And so great, on one hand, you can say we can be super highly opinionated about how things should be specified, how things should be managed, and give you a really high abstractional view, almost a Heroku-y type approach. But the problem is it's going to be so opinionated that it's going to be rigid. It's going to be inflexible. You can't bring your own opinions. Versus we could go the other way and say, okay, no, let's be super, super flexible uh, and let you kind of bring your own kind of paradigm and approach to management. But then we're so low level that we're really not much better than an SDK, right? And so the question is, like, is there a sweet spot in the middle, right? And the reality is the version that people think about as sort of Terraform that exists in the market today was our third attempt at it internally, right? The first two attempts, we built it. And on one attempt, we're like, no, this is way too low level, right? Like, the amount of leverage that it's giving you over raw SDKs isn't high enough to justify the cognitive overhead, throw it away and start over, right? Second attempt, we went too high, right? We abstracted too much. And we're like, this thing is too magical. It's hard to understand how the system is actually behaving. It's hard to really extend it and make it work in a way that you that might want to deviate from its opinion. So, we threw that one away. And so, okay, third time's the charm. Can we find sort of an approach that's in the middle? So, I think some of this even when you start with the right problem space and you start with the right generalized idea of what you want to do, the actual approach might be wrong, right? The first few times. And I think you have to have the humility to say, is what we're attached to the problem or is what we're attached to our solution, mm. right? And I think that's what we ultimately did with Terraform. It's like, it's the problem we care about. Solution one, yeah. Do we like it? Do we think it was good? You know, sure, fine. It's, it's okay. But it didn't solve the problem the way we wanted to solve it, right? So throw the solution away and try again, right? It's yeah. you know, fall in love with the problem. Is, is sort of the right way to think about it.
0: I love that. Last question here, and I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit, but can you talk about uh, a product that you had really high hopes for that, ulti- that you guys released that ultimately fell flat? And looking back at it now with 2020 hi- hindsight, what lessons do you take away?
1: Ooh, I, I actually, I really like this question because I think we've had multiple products that I'd put in this category, but I think the one... The one that makes me maybe the most sad was our tool called Surf. It's still out there, it still exists, but I, you know, I'd, I'd consider it sort of a failure in hindsight. You know, I think what we looked at is we looked at the sort of space around service discovery and, you know, how do I you know dynamically network multiple applications together and said, wouldn't it be cool to build an application in this space that was, you know, it's completely decentralized, that we have no central notion of servers or leaders, right? We can go with a fully distributed control plane. And then, great, great, we'll get all these properties like it's highly resilient and easy to operate and whatever. And I think, you know, in some sense, it's a case of we fell in love with our solution. We really loved this notion of being totally decentralized and nerding out on all these kind of cool algorithms and, you know, the the technological underpinning of the problem. And when we released it and brought it to market and really kind of started working with people, they're like, I get it. But it's a really difficult tool to work with because of some of these assumptions you've made. Because you made it totally decentralized, it has all these weird limitations. Because it operates under these certain ways, it's difficult for me to fit into a mental paradigm that I'm used to, right? It doesn't work like other software that I'm familiar with. And I think this was a super valuable lesson for us, which is we built software at the time. It's not that I had no users, right? Some of the world's largest CDNs are powered by surf. But we built a tool that expected an A++ student, right? You had to be an absolute wizard at understanding distributed systems and infrastructure and be so deep in the space to truly appreciate and operate this tool the way it was meant to be done. And you realize it's very difficult to build a tool that only caters to the A++ student. (laughs) And so I think the lesson for us was to say, okay, let's go back to the problem, right? It's the problem that we really are trying to solve. What is going to make this easy for the average person in this space to A, understand the solution, B, be able to operate this, C, be able to integrate it into an existing environment, which makes different assumptions. It's not fully decentralized. They have central software, right? They have monolithic applications. And I think for us, in many ways, console was actually a reboot of that effort, right? We spent, you know, six, nine months a year building Surf, you know, realized it was sort of a failure six months after launching it. Started all over again with console, Mm -hmm. and I think ended up with a very radically different approach to the same problem. But all of a sudden, that fit right because I think we we sort of changed a bunch of the assumptions, a bunch of the the kind of approaches. But it was tough. I mean, because I think our our view, and I think the natural view as a you know product founder is, you're like this is the right answer. Other people are just wrong, (laughs) Uh, and so they should just do it the way we think they should do it. But I think that's you know it's fine. You can hold on to those views. You're just not going to get very far.
0: Awesome. How do you guys think about what problems are actually worth solving? Like what, what how do, is there is there an ROI calculation or that goes through or how do you guys hold like because there's endless problems to solve but which what are the ones that actually command dedicated products?
1: Yeah, that's a great one, which is you know as we think about like the problem spaces that we want to invest in. I think there's a few I think there's a few considerations we go through, right? One in some sense this might be the most obvious is do we feel like there's someone else in the space doing a good job of it, right? And so we often get asked, it's like, hey, HashiCorp would be great if you built like a configuration management tool. And we're like, our view is like, but why, right? Like there's great options out there. Chef is great. Puppet's great. Ansible's great. Like you don't need us to go build something in that space. I'm not saying we would do a bad job of it, but there, there's other good solutions, right? Same thing when I talk about APM. I'm like Datadog's great. New Relic's great. Like there's plenty of options out there. There's just no point so i think that's one right which is our view is like unless we think we can do 10 times better than what's in that market it's not worth being five percent better than mm-hmm. the next person in there right so great that's let's piece one piece two is it's like what do we think the kind of addressable market is what's the tam of this product right like there is spaces where you know great you can solve this niche problem but only the fortune 100 has that problem okay it's very hard to build a especially an open source product and an ecosystem if you think your universe of customers is hundred, right? Like it's just too small. It's too niche. So you need it to be a sufficiently large problem space. I think the other one that's interesting is it's secularly aligned to where the world is going. Right. Mm-hmm. So oftentimes customers will ask us, Hey, we have this sort of use case. Would you mind extending vault to do whatever, something like managing the ability for me to check in and out service accounts for my active directory account? And you're like, okay, yeah, maybe we could do that, but really what you're trying to do is that you're asking us for a faster horse, right? Our view is, okay, you shouldn't have someone manually creating these service accounts and checking it. You shouldn't have human operators checking in and out anyway. So sure, we could, you know, extend vault into the space, but why would we? Like, this is not a, a solution space that you should be doing at all, right? So I think part of it's having sort of a view of what do you think the future looks like? And it's like, okay, well, what is the role of that sort of product, that space in that future, right? Is that a diminishing, you know, niche use case? Or is that sort of a growing, you know, burgeoning use case in, in, in kind of the the future new world? So, I think having that view is is super important. And then yeah. I think it's kind of the intersection of all of those things. If you say, great, this is aligned to where the world is moving, no one else is filling this spot or the people who are in that spot are doing a bad job of it, right? And we think it's a, you know, it's a large enough TAM, there's a big enough surface area. And the fourth piece is probably like, is it consistent with our audience, right? Like I think has a very operator developer audience. You know, if it's something way outside of our audience, you'd be like, you know, are we an effective channel to be able to go after that? You know, maybe not.
0: Fantastic. This was awesome, Norman. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Built for Devs. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear other episodes like it, please hit subscribe. You can also find more content on our blog at amplifypartners.com and on our Twitter at amplifypartners. I'm Lenny.